So tonight I'm going to talk about Jung's idea of the shadow. And the reason I'm going to talk about it is that today, right now, is the Celtic holiday of Beltane. Beltane actually began last night at sunset and goes through to sunset tonight. Um, In the Celtic understanding, there are these four big holidays, the four quarter days of the year. If you imagine the, the whole year is a circle, and it has a light half on the top and a dark half on the bottom, Beltane is at the seam. It's, it's where we're crossing from the dark half of the year into the light half of the year. And so this day and then the other day, Samoin at the, at the other seam, um, it's said in, in Irish mythology that the veil between the two worlds is thin on these days. Um, the veil between our rational world and the magical world of the fairies, the wee people. Um, they would come and cause all kinds of mischief and, you know, on these days. Um, and really that, in a way, that is a profound mythological representation of the relationship of ego, the ego realm, to the unconscious and everything that is magical and, you know, upsetting about the unconscious. Um, in Celtic mythology, it was said on Beltane, sometimes the, 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 the beautiful women, the beautiful fairy women, the banshee, would come and they would try and seduce heroes. Um, it, and it, also there are other stories where, say, a, a hunter would be following, say, an, an animal, a deer or something like this, and it would lead him into some realm of the forest where he's never been before, and suddenly the animal would become, like, king or queen of the fairies or something. And maybe he would spend what feels like only an afternoon having tea with the fairies, but then he'd come back and find out that ten years have passed. You know, something like that. And so I think that these myths also point to what is, um, what can be, both alluring and dangerous about the archetypal realm, as well as a timeless quality that comes with contacting the the archetypal. And I want to bring forth another issue, another image, a very different kind of Celtic image, uh, in almost in contrast to the images we get in Celtic mythology, the image of a leprechaun. Now, a leprechaun, that's very much a cartoonish image. It's, you know, kind of ripe for jokes. Um, it's an entertaining image. And, you know, it has a little bit of exoticism to it. But it doesn't capture anything of what is, what is real and fascinating and, you know, unsettling about the stories in Celtic mythology. Um, and I'm going to use a, a term for the leprechaun. The leprechaun I would call pretend otherness as opposed to real otherness. The, 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 the actual, what, what's portrayed in Irish mythology, the, the mystery and everything that's dangerous about the other side, that's real otherness. It's confronting, it's challenging, you know. Pretend otherness is very safe. That's entertainment. We, we can pretend it's others, but it doesn't present us with every, you know, like no one's challenged 
by the figure of a leprechaun. It's an entertaining figure. And I would say that we live in a culture that um, almost has an addiction to pretend otherness. Um, You know, for white America, pretend otherness would be something like a minstrel show. Real otherness would be someone like Malcolm X or Ta-Nehisi Coates, someone who's actually speaking profound truths, challenging truths, as opposed to the minstrel show, which is purely entertaining. We, we can pretend we're looking at otherness, but we're not, you know. Um, I think, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about infatuation and falling in love. Um, you know, falling in love is often an occasion where I construct a pretend other version of the person I've met, you know. Oh, she's wonderful, she's magical, she's perfect for me kind of thing. Um, I even think that in this country, you know, the way that this profound ideological divide we have between right and left, um, we're often dealing with pretend other versions of the other side. And so I bring this up because I'm going to talk about the shadow and talk about the unconscious And another term that you might have heard is the term, instead of unconscious, you might have heard subconscious. And some people are kind of confused. What's the difference between subconscious and unconscious? Or what, you know, what, are they the same thing or not? And the way I would frame it is subconscious is the pretend other version of the unconscious. The term subconscious The implication of that word is that ego is basically in control. I'm in control. And yeah, I might have to, you know, maybe there'd be some influences from from the subconscious that I'd have to take, you know, take into account. But basically, I'm the master in my own house. When we really understand what the unconscious is in Freud's or in Jung's terms, the radical thing that is being suggested is, we're not really the master in our own house. And that's, that's a deeply challenging and unsettling idea. I mean, it's very consistent with the way that Buddhism asks us to call into question the ego. Um, but it, it's an unsettling idea nonetheless. So Jung talked about the shadow. The shadow is... A set of, a set of you might say modalities or behaviors, that theoretically ego would be able to integrate, but for what whatever reason have been othered. Um, I think a very important word in connection with the shadow is the word permission. What do I feel a visceral sense of permission around? Do I have permission to be angry? Do I have permission to set boundaries? Do I have permission to feel sexual desire? Do I have permission to say no to people? Do I have permission to do what's right for me, even if it lets other people down? You know, all these kinds of edgy things that are not, that are not necessarily polite, you know, and, you know, all the things that make us uh, depart from a model of being, you know, good little boys and good little girls, you know. 
I'll say that um, most, in Jung's understanding, most of the unconscious is irreducibly other. It is, it is absolutely other and will always be other. Whereas the shadow, that stuff that has, has been othered, you know, often by family, by school, by early childhood training, you know. Um, but there's the possibility that we can integrate it. Um, because it's other, there's often a, almost a transgressive quality to things that are in the shadow. In other words, when I'm first integrating something in the shadow and you say, I, you know, I never thought I had permission to be angry and then I'm starting to get in touch with anger, you know, at, at first it might feel transgressive, might feel like I'm breaking the rules, that I'm getting away with something, you know, by, by stepping into this. And this, um, you know, these issues of permission run deep. They're really held in, in the, the, the lowest two chakras. Um, it's, it's very visceral. And it often, you know, I've thought about this often, you know, how do I want to say it? It, it's formed many times in early infancy, even before we're verbal, you know, in, in other words, say the infant, you know, when the infant is happy and cheerful, then a neurotic parent will, will feel connection to that infant and will love that infant and the infant, infant will experience that as safe and, you know, I'm safe now, I'm getting parental love and approval. But say the infant goes into anger or distress or something like this, and that triggers the parent and now the parent is like flustered and in their own space, then the infant experiences that as withdrawal. And withdrawal and abandonment, which feels like death to the infant, you know? And, and it's funny, sometimes those contextual things are the very first things that, that, like children learn that long before they learn any of the more specific knowledge. And it, it sets these very deep, you know, it, it's these deeply encoded messages. When I'm happy, then I'm safe. When I'm a good little boy, I'm safe. But when I'm starting to go into area X, Y, Z, then I'm not safe. And I can't go there. Then I don't have permission to go there. You know, that kind of thing. So it takes tremendous self-love and self-care to bring forth places that are in the shadow. Now I'll say that, you know, perhaps many of you, like me, had a childhood where, you know, at least at certain points during the childhood, I felt very, you know, looking back now, I would say I was very constrained in like being a good little boy kind of mode. Um, and I would imagine that, like me, many folks have integrated parts of their shadow during the course of their life. Maybe there are times when they didn't have good boundaries and now have better boundaries. There are times they weren't comfortable with anger and now you're more comfortable with anger. Um, and I would say integrating the shadow, another way to say that is 
stepping more and more into one's power. And I want to read a, a famous quote. This is a quote that probably many of you will recognize. It's from Marion Williamson. It's from a book of hers, Return to Love, which is Reflections on the Course in Miracles. Our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it's in everyone. As we let our own life sh- our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And so that, that's a famous quote, among other things, because a few years after she wrote it, Nelson Mandela used that quote in his inaugural address. In fact, it's funny, half the citations on the web cite Nelson Mandela as the, this, the origin of that quote. I came across that quote, I don't know, 20, 20 some odd years ago, and it really struck me because it it intuitively rang deeply true. Like I, I didn't have any doubt that it was that it was true, but it really made me wonder, why is it true? Why are why is our why is power our deepest fear? Why are we more afraid of the light than the darkness? You know, and I've been pondering that for for a couple decades. I think. Um, because, you know, on the surface, it sounds like a paradox. We're, we're afraid of our power. It sounds like, you know, ego says, well, I'd like to be powerful. <laughs> Give me the power. I'd like it, you know. Um, but I think what ego wants is control. Not necessarily power. You know, and there's this conflation between power and control. And, and control is, control comes out of the second chakra, and of course, in, a, in our civilization, that is rife with people who have second chakra wounding. You know, control is, is something ripe for constellating. Um, part of stepping into our true power involves letting go of control. And right there, that's something frightening. Part of stepping into our own power involves stepping into our own vulnerability. And right there, that's frightening. Um, But I think what's really frightening about stepping into power is the awesome responsibility. It's a quote that's been on the quote sheet in previous weeks. It's not on the current week. Freud said something like, you know, people say they want to be free, but most people don't want freedom because freedom involves responsibility and most people don't want the responsibility. Um... I think we all indulge in victim 
victim narrative sometimes, you know. It's so natural, you know. We all indulge in self-pity sometimes. You know, it's so natural. It's so human, you know. And part of us almost likes to have that as an escape hatch. Likes to have it as a, you know, if things get too tough, let me whine about it. Let me blame someone else. Let me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And true power would mean giving up all of that. True power would mean I am fully responsible for everything in my life. And I have to face it exactly as it is. You know, and that's a scary thing. And I'll say also, how do I want to say this? The journey of integrating the shadow is the journey of of integrating the the kinds of wisdoms into into ego that allows me to be more and more open to the power. But that true power is not something the ego owns. That true power always has has the the always has is is from the otherness of the unconscious really and it's more our learning to be in sync with it and be open to it you know um buddhist iconography often has an image of say enlightened figures riding say a tiger or a dragon you know something like this and it's that sort of being in sync with the other and riding the the other and being supported by it you know, because one is so in sync with it. Um, And I think it's also important to name that integrating the shadow and stepping more into my own power, among other things, this opens me up more as a healer. The more we integrate ourselves, the more we heal ourselves, the more healing impact we have on others around us. And so it really raises this, this profound question, does my spiritual path belong to me? You know? And, you know, when we start our spiritual work, you know, I think we all get it get into spirituality because life is tweaking us some way and we want to be calmer or, you know, feel better about ourselves or something, which, which is fine, you know. But the more we go, it's like, well, is this, is, am I doing this because of me? Or, am I, or does my practice really belong to all sentient beings? Which is exactly what Buddhism would say, you know. And again, it's, you know, ego wants, well, I want control, you know, I want, I want it to be about me, you know, you know. So I'll share the quote sheet and um, I need to apologize to the people on Zoom. I had a, a glitch. I'm not able to log into Google, so I wasn't able to get the Google Doc to share. But if you, um, if you, this will be posted later on the podcast and you can get the, the quote sheet that way. Um, so at the top I have the Marion Williamson quote, which is a which is a good one to contemplate. Um, a Sufi saying, "When the heart heart weeps for what it has lost, 
The spirit laughs for what it has found. Heraclitus, who's who's one of my favorite philosophers, we are most nearly ourselves when we achieve the seriousness of a child at play. Um, from Mungza, Mungza, I, I often like to point out, he's, he's the number two guy in the Confucian tradition, number two after Confucius himself. Mungza is the man who added a heart quality to the entire Confucian tradition. I have, I have a lot of respect for Mungza. And he said, quite simply, the great man does not lose a childlike heart. And there's something not child, how can I say, Ego can be very childish, but there's there's something almost childlike in in the innocence and surrender that's involved in stepping toward the one's power. Paracelsus, the great alchemist, said, "That which the dream shows is the shadow of such wisdom as exists in man. For if during his waking state he may know nothing about it." We do not know it because we are fooling away our time with outward and perishing things and our sleep in regard to that which is real within ourselves. Frederick Douglass said, quite simply, it is easier to build stronger children than to repair broken men. A couple from Carl Jung. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. Jung also said the experience of the self, the experience of the whole self, is always a defeat for the ego. Khalil Gibran said, Keep me from the wisdom that does not weep, the philosophy that does not laugh, and the pride does not bow its head before a child. William Dixon said, Probably upon no subject ever discussed through the length and breadth of the globe has there ever been a fiercer hubbub of words than upon this, the foundations of morality. Why should I ask God to make me good when I want to be naughty? asked the little girl. All the wise men of the world are put to shame by this childish query. A parliament of philosophers will not resolve it. When we set out in search of an answer, we are, like the rebel angels in Milton's pandemonium, in wandering mazes lost. Catherine Manfield said, By health I mean the power to live a full adult living, breathing life in close contact with what I love, the earth and the wonders thereof, the sea, the sun, all that we mean when we speak of the external world. I want to enter into it, be a part of it, to live it, to learn it, to lose all that is superficial and acquired in me and to become a conscious and direct human being. I want, by understanding myself, to understand others. I want to be all that I am capable of becoming so that I may... And here I have stopped and waited and waited, and it's no good. There's only one phrase that will do. I may be a child of the sun. About helping others, about carrying light and so forth, it seems false to say a single word. Let it be that, a child of the sun. 
Milton Erickson said, The unconscious mind is decidedly simple, unaffected, straightforward, and honest. It hasn't got all this facade, this veneer of what we call adult culture. It's rather simply, rather childish. It's direct and free. Flannery O'Connor said, Anyone who has survived childhood has enough information about life to last him the rest of his days. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said, We think sometimes we're only drawn to the good, but we're actually drawn to the authentic. We like people who are more real than those who hide their true selves under layers of artificial niceties. The Jungian Marion Woodman said, Having a body that is like a musical instrument, open enough to be able to resonate, literally resonate with what is coming both from the inside and outside, so that one is able to surrender to powers greater than oneself. Ted Hughes says, That's the paradox. The only time people feel fully alive is when they're suffering, when something overwhelms their ordinary careful armor and the naked child is flung out into the world. That's why things that are the worst to undergo are the best to remember. But when that child gets buried away under adaptive and protective shelves, he becomes one of the walking dead, a monster. So when you realize you've gone a few weeks and you haven't felt the awful struggle of your childish self, struggling to lift itself out of inadequacy and incompetence, you'll know you've gone some weeks without meeting a new challenge, without growing, and you've gone some weeks toward losing touch with yourself. The only calibration that counts is how much heart people invest how much they ignore their fears of being hurt or caught out or humiliated. The only thing people regret is that they didn't live boldly enough, that they didn't invest enough heart, didn't love enough. Nothing else really counts at all. Jack O'Keefe, the spiritual teacher, says, There's nothing to fix, nothing to do, no need to be better, nicer, or in a certain way, All that stuff is just thoughts. There's no need to take any interest in it. How things are is just fine. Rest. Rest on the inside. And Stephen Cope says, It is the night sea journey that allows us to free the energy trapped in these cast-off parts, trapped in what Marion would call the shadow. The goal of this journey is to reunite with ourselves. Such a homecoming can be surprisingly painful, even brutal. In order to untake it, We must first agree to exile nothing.